Welcome back to the Lady Science Podcast, a monthly deep dive on topics centered on women and gender in the history and popular culture of science. With you every month are the editors of the Lady Science Magazine. I'm Anna Reeser, co-founder and co-editor-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm an artist, writer, and a PhD student. I study 20th century American culture and the history of the American space program in the 1960s. I'm Layla McNeil, one of the founders and editors-in-chief of Lady Science. I'm a historian of science and freelance writer with words in various places on the internet, and currently I am a regular writer on women in the history of science at smithsonian.com. And I'm Rebecca Ortenberg, Lady Science's managing editor. Um, when I'm not working with the Lady Science team, I can be found writing about museums and public history around the internet, mostly on Twitter, and managing research projects at the Chemical Heritage Foundation in Philadelphia. So for this episode, and in the spirit of Halloween, we're going to be talking about some of the historical connections between the study of the supernatural and the study of science. Anna will talk about how UFOlogy patterns itself on mainstream science and reproduces all of its problems with women and gender. Layla will talk about 19th century spiritualism and the attempt in the 20th century of the attempt of 20th century scientists to measure and analyze the supernatural. And I'll talk a little bit about Folklore Thursday, a place on Twitter where people share interesting bits of folklore history. Finally, a longtime contributing editor to Lady Science Magazine, Kate Shepard, will join us to talk about her fascinating research on the esteemed archaeologist Margaret Murray and her groundbreaking work on the folklore of witchcraft. My piece about ufology um, is called Visitation and Violence, Gender and the UFO Phenomenon. It's on Lady Science, and we'll put a link in the show notes. But basically, the piece is about how uh, UFO narratives, uh, especially abduction narratives, contain all of these sort of anxieties about rape, violation, and female body, gender, and generation, um, and they are sort of constructed within this, what's usually considered, I think, a fringe scientific field or a pseudoscientific field of ufology, um, and that ufology uh, patterns itself on so-called mainstream science uh, and tries to construct different types of evidence uh, based on a pattern that we recognize as mainstream science. So what I mean by that is that um, people go out and try to photograph UFOs because that would be considered like very hard evidence or they try to um, get like castings of marks on the ground uh, where a UFO might have landed. They document um, cattle mutilation. So especially like physical evidence of things that are supposed to have been caused by extraterrestrials or their vehicles. That's the most kind of important ufological evidence. Um, and that all kind of conforms to what we would expect um, and like a scientific field to do, go out and collect physical evidence. Another thing that it comes up a lot is like radiation signatures at like landing sites somehow are supposed to indicate the presence of extraterrestrial craft. So there's this kind of like going out and looking for the physical evidence of visitation. And then there's this whole other chunk of ufology that has to do with these 
abduction narratives and like um, in-person visitations between humans and extraterrestrials. And particularly in abduction narratives, um, uh, there's a lot going on there about um, gender and bodies and sexuality. Um, think of anal probes, <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> there's like a, a, a really pronounced strain of these abduction narratives that has to do with women, human women being abducted and impregnated by the aliens. Um, sometimes that's accompanied by a kind of like, uh, the woman will have like, uh, she'll have been told by the aliens that her giving birth to this sort of hybrid human alien child is going to like save the human species. Um, so there's, there's a lot of work I think that's been done about like these kind of rhetorical tropes about uh, redemption and like um, savior narratives that the aliens are going to come and save humanity. But what I'm really interested in is the way that um, if you pick apart this tension in ufology between like the need to have this hard evidence because that sort of validates ufology as the science and then all of this like eyewitness accounts and um, reports that were kind of like retrieved by hypnosis, uh, repressed memories of abduction. Um, these are like extremely soft evidence. And so we would see science as we understand it in the mainstream, not really being very impressed with these kind of pieces of evidence. <clears throat> so um, if there's no physical uh, proof that anything happened to you and all you have are memories of being abducted, uh, it's very difficult to validate that in a scientific way. So I think there's something really interesting here about the way that ufology struggles with these two sort of um, important sectors of its practice and the kinds of evidence that are involved there. And um, I think it's worth noting that all of this sort of like soft evidence has to do with um, mostly women being abducted and all of those sort of narratives about impregnation and generation um, kind of fall on the soft side of the evidence scale for ufology. And then the hard side um, doesn't really have anything to do with human bodies generally. So I think for me, uh, looking at fringe sciences and pseudosciences and uh, tracing where they kind of um, pick and choose, I guess, which parts of science are going to be most useful to them or which sort of images of scientific practice they can kind of appropriate to reinforce their own legitimacy um, and that um, just like in modern science, in modern mainstream science, like the the eyewitness account, um, the embodied knowledge of someone who has had an experience is generally much less valuable than um, like the body of a mutilated cow, I guess. And so that's just one of the things that I've been kind of exploring with studying pseudoscience um, is the way that it kind of models itself on science and 
that modeling process really, um, I think, highlights some of the contradictions and um, issues that what we consider mainstream science has with gender and bodies and women's knowledge and testimony, um, eyewitness accounts, hard, soft evidence. So that's kind of what I was exploring in the piece. And I'll just say that there um, was a book called The Resonance of Unseen Things by uh, Susan Lepselter that just won a really big anthropology prize. And it's about um, the, the rhetoric of the uncanny and conspiracy theories um, having to do with ufology. It's called, uh, the subtitle is Poetics, Power and Captivity and UFOs in the American Uncanny. So I haven't read it, but it sounds really good, but also sounds like something I would have to read in the middle of the day with all the lights on, <laughs> just because this stuff really creeps me out. But You know, before we started recording, um, you were talking about how the creepiest thing for you is the idea of a being abducted by aliens and then no one believing you. And it occurred to me as you were talking about your piece, like just how freaking gendered that is. <laughs> like uh, the, the idea of not being believed about, especially a bodily experience is just something that is so thoroughly part of the narrative of women's lives uh, that, again, you see in this sort of um, fringe scientific field, all of those anxieties reflected as well. Yeah, so something I talk about in the piece is that um, in these abduction narratives where there are, um, like, physical interventions on the body of the abductee, um, the way that the, the abductee usually reports this or describes the scene is very, very close to, like, very recognizable, like, 20th century modern um, medical environment. So there's, like, instruments and, like, shiny non-porous surfaces, and um, the procedures conform to, like, what we would recognize as, like, a modern surgical practice. Um, and I think... Uh, what you said about that experience of women not being believed is really pronounced um, for us, for women in like um, medical settings. Yeah. Uh, modern yeah. medicine just has very little time for women to have knowledge about their own bodies um, on which they might base an intervention. So like you can tell your doctor um, what you think is going on in your body until you're blue in the face. And it usually doesn't matter. Um, because modern medicine has a whole uh, elaborate diagnostic apparatus um, that does not have any place for your personal experience, your eyewitness account of what right. happened to your body. They want the scientific evidence, not the exactly. eyewitness account. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so, like, the reproduction of this, like, um, the, the visual culture or the visuality, I guess, of, like, the modern medical practice in these abduction narratives is one of the things that I think um, is gives you that kind of like distorted mirror image of modern science that you can really start to pick apart like rhetorically. You look at the abduction narrative as a text and as like a, a 
an exploration of someone's experience of modern medicine and women abductees, their narratives always involve this like kind of powerlessness in this like recognizable sort of hospital surgical setting. So I have to talk about X-Files in this conversation because <laughs> yes. uh, there's just no way that you can't. Um, season two uh, is when Scully gets abducted by the aliens and she's missing for, I don't remember how long, comes back and is unconscious, back in the hospital or whatever. Um, Mulder starts losing his shit on the doctors um and he says at one point that what the aliens are doing to these women is medical rape and actually calls it that and it's like you can't really have a conversation about the images and things like that going on in what you're talking about in this piece and in the x-files without relating that to modern medical science because while there were male abductees in the show, it it wasn't the same. It was the women that were being impregnated. It was the women that were having all of these weird cancers and stuff that were coming, you know, popping up later on and things like that. That this was a very kind of gendered, um, a gendered thing that the supposed aliens were doing. Um, and Mulder calls it what it is, um, kind of bringing in a sharp relief going on in, you know, modern medical science. And one of the things about that I like about X-Files is Scully is always kind of the, the um, science compass, right? She's always the one that's like, okay, well, that's not science, Mulder. Just what are you doing? You're ridiculous. Um, you know, kind of just like shouting at the men around her who won't listen to her. Um, and after she has this abduction experience, and then later on when um, – you know, she gets sick and all these other women who are abducted start getting these cancers. And it's almost like she, who's always been kind of like the science center or the science anchor, has to contend with that. And also her own personal eyewitness experience that is subjective. And so like these kind of two parts of her life um, provide um, a really interesting struggle that goes throughout the series. And what is kind of just embodied in her whole internal struggle is this idea of what is soft evidence and what is hard evidence. And even when it's herself experiencing it, that it's still a struggle that she can't quite reconcile. I mean, I guess I could watch that, but like I said, I have to do it <laughs> at high noon. Maybe at my mom's house. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's pretty great, but also, yeah, very creepy. And, yeah, it is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But, yeah, I mean, like, men in the series do have various experiences with aliens, but they're not those same, like, but those sort of powerless abduction narratives are saved for a lot of female characters, uh, whether it's, you know, the monster of the week kind of characters or, or the ones that hang around. Anything else? Awesome. Aliens. To add about UFO, is it ufology or UFO? I don't think I say it right. What is it? Oh, I just say ufology, but I don't know if it's UFOlogy because there's not an <laughs> extra UFO. 
I don't know. I just say ufology because <laughs> it's easier. I think I easier. said ufology, but who knows? Yeah. I think, well, <laughs> oh, you could just make the argument that it's, since it's not a real science, you can say whatever you want about it. It's true. <laughs> it's a made-up word. <laughs> so the piece that I wrote last year was called Vulgar Women, Queer Men, and Unruly Spirits. And I looked at the gendered underpinnings of 19th century spiritualism and 20th century psychical research. Spiritualism was a very popular 19th century practice that attempted to connect the living with the dead by way of a medium, which was almost always a woman, and with some exceptions there. One of the most recognizable aspects of spiritualism was the seance. Seances occurred almost exclusively in a domestic setting, either in the medium's home or in the home of someone hosting a seance. So um, that would be like polite dinner entertainment is to have a seance in your home for your guests. Um, and I'm sure you kind of have, you conjure up images of what a seance looks like. It's been on TV, in pop culture, uh, and, you know, the, the dark room, a group sitting in a circle, lights blinking, walls knocking, all of that kind of smoke and mirrors type of stuff. Um, and so while we can debate the blinking lights and the spooky sounds, the setting and the aesthetic that the pop culture represents isn't too far off from the real thing. Um, the woman medium was the main event, and she didn't just call spirits to appear. She allegedly embodied them and surrendered her entire conscious self to them, taking on their manner of speech, their behavior, character, everything. Mediumship could be particularly appealing for women who embody gender and sexuality in non-conforming ways. So if, a possessed, if possessed by a male spirit, she would take on the voice, mannerisms, and behaviors of that man sometimes becoming aggressive, vulgar, overtly sexual, or blasphemous. And in the context of a seance, this behavior from a woman could be entirely acceptable. Um, that doesn't mean she could go rampaging down the street, like, you know, cursing at people and whatever, um, <laughs> even though that would have been cool for me. Um, but uh, so while that was acceptable in the context of, the seance and people who followed spiritualism and kind of bought into the whole thing, um, you know, is totally acceptable. Um, but for medical men who did not buy into the spiritualist movement, believed this to be really nothing more than, uh, quote, pathological hysteria or, quote, sexual deviancy, um, and saw it as grounds for carting women off to asylums. So there was that, that kind of risk going on there. But for the most part, um, you know, the spiritualist movement embraced powerful women in this way. Um, and women were seen as particularly suited for supernatural phenomenon because of the cultural constructions of women that were deeply embedded in Victorian thinking. So they were seen as the feeling and the passive sex and that they had a closer connection to nature itself. Men often assumed these assumptions about women's nature to relegate them to the domestic sphere. But through mediumship, women could stay within the confines of their prescribed femininity while also finding power in it at the same time through mediumship. The very qualities that rendered women the supposedly weaker sex in the real world gave them power in the spiritualist movement. So you can see why this is attractive um, for, for women, especially women who embody gender and sexuality in non-conforming ways. So fast forward to the 20th century, 
when science has become crystallized as a masculine pursuit. During this time, you also have the professionalization of the sciences, kind of the extirpation of women from these fields in general. Um, and so by the time prominent male scientists of the 20th century kind of resurrected supernatural studies, that it was, um, you know, predominantly a boys club, for sure. Um, so you have these prominent male scientists making concerted efforts to study the supernatural. And instead of spiritualism, they call it psychical research. The darkened room of the seance was replaced by the illuminated lab of the scientist. And spiritualists didn't actually reject science, uh, but they did believe that scientific method um, did have its limits when it came to the supernatural. That scientific, the scientific method cannot be imposed on the supernatural. Um, psychical researchers, though, did believe that rigorous application of the scientific method could uncover the forces behind mediumship. Part of establishing psychical research as a legitimate field of study is that they had to establish themselves as objective, rational, and skeptical observers. All of those things that make you a good modern scientist, right? This, however, changed the power dynamics of mediumship. Women's authority was overturned by the psychical researcher because building a case around a woman and her subjective evidence of the supernatural defied the scientific method of objective, observable inquiry. It was also believed that women themselves could not be psychical researchers because their femaleness made them too much like the object being studied, the female medium, <laughs> right? Uh, <laughs> of course. Um, so... Uh, Women were so disbelieved in psychical research that in the case of the well-known medium Lenora Piper, the researchers actually deferred to one of her alleged male spirits to learn about the phenomena rather than a conscious and aware Piper. So somehow the, the maybe fake spirit that they're investigating is more reliable because it <laughs> has a man's voice than the woman, right? Uh, it's ridiculous. The only part of the woman medium that mattered to the researcher was her body as a vessel for phenomena. All the other sciences in the 20th century, psychical research had become a boys club. And obviously psychical research did not become a legitimate field of scientific study. Um, and there's, you know, reasons for that. Um, like with ufology, I mean, it's not really hard evidence if someone's just giving you their first hand experience account, right? Especially if it's coming from a woman. Um, so whether you're calling this thing spiritualism or you're, you know, slapping some modern science on it and calling it psychical research, it doesn't change the fact that it's still a subjective experience that's being studied and specifically a woman's experience that is trying to be quantified. Um, and you can't really build a science on that as we know science to be. So um, when you were talking about how uh, the researchers were <laughs> listening to uh, Piper's spirits instead of her to get actual evidence, it just reminded me of these studies um, about uh, me uh, men evaluating um, evaluating research about gender bias and like uh, but yes. Like, there was a they're thing. supposed to be, you know, men are supposed to be the objective, rational scientists, and they uh, like overwhelmingly uh, rate fake science about gender bias as being totally legitimate. Uh, <laughs> and it's just like, 
it's another example of where like men will go to to any lakes to be told what they want to hear um, and to not have to listen to what women have to say about anything. Like, they will yeah. listen to spirits. They will uh, validate <laughs> entirely falsified research papers. Like, it's incredible, really. But it's also, there's such a long tradition of it. <laughs> it's perhaps the most storied tradition uh, in modern science, I think. Yeah, yeah I feel as old as time. A study recently um where yeah they were uh like men yeah men were more likely to rate fake studies showing that there was not a gender bias Mm -hmm. um in science uh way more highly than real studies that showed that there were and yeah (sighs) and then I think there were then a lot of comments about those studies about how it wasn't like there was this whole like inception of sexism around the commentary around around that study I feel like it's just like a vortex of... Yeah. Ugh. <laughs> yeah. The other thing uh, that, that your paper made me think of, Layla, um, was the kind of... Um, the, the version of ghost hunting that has lasted into the 21st century is that kind of scientific ghost hunting uh, with, you know, all of the ghost hunting shows, but also, you know, if you want to go and, like, poke around an old building of some kind you have your emf meter uh and hilariously the one that's used by the most um that's most used by ghost hunters is something that is manufactured by the father of a friend of mine uh and (laughs) originally it was there was a bunch of these kind of meters that were created uh before this new like version of ghost hunting came up and it was to detect faulty wiring in your house or something because that's actually what it can detect. Uh, and his was the only one that had, like, instead of a um, a dial on it, uh, it had a light that lit up. And so then when ghost hunting becomes a thing, his is the one that people start buying uh, because you can see it in the dark. <laughs> that's right. Because wow. they, like, I watched a lot of ghost hunting shows. They yeah. put the EMF meter in like, the <laughs> middle of a room. Right, and they go. They make a big show of going around and being like, "It's not the wiring. We checked the wiring." And then they put it in the <laughs> middle of the room, and then they stand in the doorway and like, "If you're here, give us a sign." And then the little light will blink. <laughs> right, and you can see right. it on their night vision cameras. Like exactly, yeah. Uh, but it goes to show that this whole idea of oh, if we can make this scientific, then even in this obvious realm of entertainment. Uh, it it's more legitimate. It's more interesting. Uh, it's the whole, you know, all of the the shows. The guys have this skepticism about them. There's always one of the stories that's not true, uh, just to like prove that they're being skeptical. And so, yeah, it's all based on this 20th century idea of of uh, psychical research, which is just fascinating. Yeah, just sciencing up the whole thing a little right. bit. Right. Right. Exactly. Well, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um this sort of fairly amiable coexistence between like spiritualism and in the 19th century this like explosion of interest in natural sciences and how these things kind of um coexisted in this way that like having a seance was like a perfectly acceptable dinner entertainment but you would you know if you're like a fairly well-off middle-class person you might also visit the science museum or you know take in demonstrations of electricity and there wasn't like a 
a real conflict. There is sort of this sense maybe that um, that's more of a spectrum of ways of investigating the world that spiritualism was a part of. I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about that, because I think that that um, that might be like unfamiliar to people who are uh, more used to the like super scienced up study of the paranormal. God, the Victorians were just so weird about so many things. <laughs> All uh, things. God, they just I love everything them. about they love them. a good craze. I, I love, yeah, I I love them so much. Um, and but they were they were into some weird stuff. Um, <laughs> and one of those things, like, because it doesn't on the surface, it doesn't seem to make sense that you have, you know, the kind of growing materialism of a science culture with like Darwin and Huxley and all of those guys that are very like, not even not spiritualism, but spirituality in general, like separating that from the natural world and from scientific study, you have that going on. And then you also have people really interested in spiritualism and the supernatural. And one of those people was actually Alfred Russell Wallace, who worked with Darwin with natural selection. So um, it's not like these were fringe people um that were interested in this um and then you have also arabella buckley who wrote um popular science and natural history books for children but she was also um you know a scientist in her own right um she was first charles lyell's secretary and then she broke out on her own and created a career for herself writing about science um so these weren't fringe people that were also that were at once interested and science, and then we're also interested in spiritualism. Those two things, they were doing both of them at the same time. Um, and I think one of the ways that those types of thinking about nature were able to come together is that um, natural history and science were kind of two different things. They had overlap for sure, but they were a little bit different. So natural history was more about um, uh, went up really closely with natural theology, so that there was divineness in nature, um, and that a lot of natural history came from that too, um, especially when women were doing it. Um, so there was already kind of these prevalent understandings in a large portion of Victorian culture and among natural histor or, uh, natural historians is that um, there was something spiritual. There was something like that going on, something divine in the natural world already. And so um, this was, in a way, just another way of looking at that. So Anna, you said like a spectrum of looking at the natural world. Um, and this was kind of, I think, part of that and why those, those two seemingly uh, opposing viewpoints about science and the world kind of could come together for the Victorians in this way. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and I could be wrong about this, but is it sort of, to me at least, natural history also sort of implies that you have a certain amount of, I guess what we'd call now qualitative data, where there's drawings or descript written descriptions of things, uh, things that maybe are a little bit closer to uh, sort of first-person accounts and and experiences and less like 
numbers and measurements. And so maybe is, is there a connection there as well? Maybe that kind of qualitative experiences are more understood as part of natural history? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the big things with natural history was that uh, it was uh, pretty egalitarian in that anybody could do it. Because if you could just like walk out your door and go look at something in nature, then you could engage in natural history in some way. Um, And so it was a very kind of personal interaction Mm -hmm. with nature. Um, And so with that, there was, you know, the 19th century natural history got classification, cataloging, observation, um, writing that stuff down all of the time, right? Right. Um, that it, it, you have kind of that, that uh, difference in observable, hands-on type of stuff also filtered through a personal interaction with nature. And then you have kind of the science that was emerging during this time, which was more theoretical. Um, but natural history was more of like a culture. It was deeply mm-hmm. embedded in culture. Yeah. yeah. Rebecca, what did you have yeah. for us? Oh, yeah. So uh, what I brought to share today um, isn't a lady science essay quite yet, though it will be, I think, eventually as I pull all this stuff together. Uh, and it's also taking a little bit of turn, a little bit of a turn from uh, investigating historical moments and looking at the way that we talk about history and all of these things kind of in the wider world. Uh, and that is, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the Twitter hashtag Folklore Thursday. So if you are not aware, um, each Thursday, there's a group of folklorists who take to Twitter to share links and articles and images related to folk stories and traditional foodways and legends and folk art and scholarly analysis of all of these things as well. I've been following it for a little while, um, and I've been really impressed by the number and the diversity of the people who contribute. Uh, so if you go, you follow the hashtag or you go to their uh, their just like Twitter page, you'll see uh, historians who are sharing their research. Uh, you see novelists and filmmakers taking part. Uh, Guillermo del Toro to, like contributed to it a while ago. Um you so do you see enthusiasts who are talking about family legends or things that they've learned about in their communities uh and it's just kind of this just celebratory mix of like all this interesting and cool stuff that people uh have been telling folk stories about um and so i've been really impressed with the speed it's grown it's been just about two years since it formally launched uh, and the work the hashtags originators have put into keeping it going. Um, so like most public outreach efforts, Folklore Thursday doesn't happen um, spontaneously. Dee uh, Dee Cheney and Willow Winsham are the founders and creators. Uh, and so each Thursday they will promote the hashtag, they contribute to it, they remind people to contribute to it, they retweet things that other people are doing, uh, and just continue kind of curate um, to use an overused word on the internet, but that one is that is accurate sometimes to uh, this the six folklore Thursday experience. And I think it's it's easy to 
think for a lot of public outreach efforts that they will happen spontaneously if if the work is good enough. It's kind of a uh, if you build it, they will come theory that is not true for anything but the field of dreams. Uh, and <laughs> I, I feel like the work that they it the fact that they put so much work into it shows that the way in which um, research and history and history of science and women's history can be best shared is really by putting the, the work out there into making sure that it, it stays shared. Uh, so um, I recently reached out to Willow about the, um, the work that she's done to put into it. And I'm going to turn the conversation that we had into an essay for a future history of lady science. So stay tuned. I don't want to uh, have you get too much into the actual article that you're going to write. Can you just give a little bit about how they reach out to people, non-folklorists, like how they get, have gotten other people um, that aren't familiar with this work on board? Um, to follow the hashtag or even actively participate in it. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely talk about that a little bit. Um, I think that a lot of that is that the two of them were embedded in a lot of um, sort of writer and like non-academic writer and blogging communities already. Uh, and though though they are both folklorists, uh, so they were really kind of building on a lot of those communities, I think, as as opposed to, in some ways, the sort of academic communities that they're a little bit a part of. Uh, and so looking at things like Monday blogs or Sunday blog share uh, or other or different kinds of women's uh, uh, writer hashtags. And so they did have a community. They, they were already kind of involved in a non-folklorist community. And um, I think that that really helped them build it up is by being involved in uh, these popular communities already. So people were excited to contribute to them. And it's it's funny, it's grown a lot. One of the things they say is that at this point, they they need to, uh, it needs to stop growing because they can't handle it anymore. It's just the two of them, which sounds like a beautiful problem to have. We're now going to bring Kate Shepard into the conversation. She's a longtime contributing editor for Lady Science. Back in April, Kate wrote an article for the magazine about archaeologist, Egyptologist, and folklorist Margaret Murray and her witch cult hypothesis. She details how Murray and her work on witches was marginalized in her time, only to be resurrected by a man who ultimately received credit for this work. Welcome, Kate, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you. Um, I'm associate professor at Missouri S&T in Rolla, Missouri, in the history and political science department. I'm a historian of science, and I focus on women in the history of archaeology. Um, I know that everyone here is on Twitter, and as am I, I am mostly angry on Twitter, but on other platforms, <laughs> I'm a little bit nicer to people, um, and I have fun on all of them, but Twitter is, is the angriest one. Thank you for having me on. Yay! Happy to have you. Yay! Twitter's good for being angry. I think we yeah. all approve of that. <laughs> so I guess we'll start at the beginning. What got you interested in Margaret Murray and her work on witches? Well, I really do. I really do love this question. I love when people ask me what got me interested in her because uh, it very much is what I think brings most historians to study women. Um, I sort of found evidence of her 
And I really wanted to know more. So I was working on my master's thesis about uh, Flinders Petrie. He's this great man, Egyptologist. Um, and in his autobiography, he mentioned that during a field season in 1904, he said, quote, my colleague, Miss Murray, came out to join us. And that was it. Um, that was the only mention of her in his memoir of 70 years in the field. The title of it is actually 70 years in archaeology. Um, and so I wondered who this colleague was. So I started looking around and it turns out she worked with Petrie at University College London for 40 years. And after he retired, she worked with his projects for 20 years after that. And then on her, but on her own, she was an influential Egyptologist, anthropologist, field archaeologist, linguist, and author herself. She's one of those figures in, in the history of science where almost everyone knows who she is. And so when you mention her, everyone says, oh, yeah, of course, it's about time somebody's talking about her. So no one really had talked about her in particular, and I was sort of hooked. It's sort of this compulsion that I have about people like that, and I think, I think really I'm in good company with everyone here and hopefully a lot of our listeners. Um, it turned out that a lot of her work, uh, and at this point no one should be surprised by this, had actually been marginalized for one reason or another, one big thing for her, for witchcraft, was getting out of Petrie's shadow, which is a really hard thing to do. So she had to shift into fields like folklore, um, and she excavated in Malta and Menorca, really just to get away from him and to sort of step outside of his field. Yeah. <laughs> Literally going to the ends of the earth to get away from him. <laughs> yes. Seriously. Well, I, I just... A comment on the fact that he worked with her for, um, 60, like, just, yeah. yeah, and that was some just errant comment about this one colleague once, like, that is mind-blowing, that yeah. they worked so closely for that long, and she gets, like, oh, sorry, that just, that blows my mind, is that that's all she got from him. <laughs> that's it, yeah. yeah. Like, like, she was, she... They worked so closely together that she had to get away from him to, like, make a name for herself, but he didn't bother to mention her. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> and in her, I do have to include that in her autobiography, he gets an entire chapter devoted just to him. The rest <laughs> of the book very much is about him because they're they're working so closely together, but he gets a whole chapter just donate, like, dedicated to him. Oh, boy. Yeah. <laughs> So just to get a little bit more into kind of what what makes Murray's, Murray's work so interesting besides being in some ways uh, a perfect example of a marginalized uh, woman academic. Um, in your article, you say uh, Murray's work in folklore is not unlike that of powerful women healers of the early modern period who were marginalized, discredited, and then outed as witches all while men use their knowledge of the body to create what we call modern obstet ob obstetrics. Uh, it's, it's such an interesting comparison. I feel like it's this, it's this beautiful simile that brings together all of these things that we think about in the history of science and women's history. Um, can you say a little bit more about that? Yes, I definitely can. But it's going to be a long answer, sort of, to kind of, like, tell this story, right? So Awesome. So to get away, and there's really no other way to say it, get away from Petrie, she had to step a, a bit outside of her area of expertise, which was Egyptology, to study folklore and women in the practice of witchcraft. And to her, 
it really wasn't that big of a stretch. She, she worked as though it was all part of the same goal, which was the study of human life in the past. She clearly had some authority in this topic, uh, and she started um, coming out with ideas such as when Christians moved into England, they persecuted the pagan rituals as demonic in order to prioritize their own deity. This is something that sort of runs through the kind of the history of Christianity spreading around the world or just other religions kind of coming into to new areas. So she detailed a lot of these pagan rituals based on primary source evidence, like testimonies from witches' trials from the early modern period, which she actually took as factual accounts, which ended up being really problematic. Because from these accounts, she sort of pieces together this witchcraft practice where there are covens of 13, usually all women, um, but she argued that they weren't really worshiping the devil, but they were worshiping nature many times in physical ways. So they used their bodies to worship nature, but she argued that it rarely produced sexual orgies like others had accused them of, right? So trying to marginalize these women who were doing pagan rituals by going, look, it's all about sex. She was like, no, actually it's not. It's all about nature um, and just sort of enjoying that and worshiping that. Um, so uh, she, she wrote three main books that she's pretty famous for. Uh, the Witch Cult in Western Europe, which came out in 1921. The God of the Witches that came out in 1931. And then The Divine King in England in 54. Uh, and some people argue her ideas got, quote unquote, crazier uh, with each book. So the first two argue for the presence of a witch cult in England in the early modern period. Um, and detail some of these things these cults did, which is based, again, on this primary source evidence. I mean, she really did take as factual these accounts from witchcraft trials, um, saying, you know, they're telling the truth. This is what they really did. But in The Divine King in England, uh, a lot of people argue that she sort of went off the deep end. One, There was one folklorist who said this is Margaret Murray at her most bonkers. Um, and because she, she argued that these ancient king rituals were brought to England, um, and early Anglo-Saxons killed their own kings as part of these pagan rituals. So if they're not fit to lead, then they were killed in a ritual, sort of saying, okay, you're clearly not physically fit or mentally fit to lead this group, so we're going to kill you in a ritual. I mean, she pulled from anthropological studies of early societies where there is evidence of this. There's even evidence of it in um, ancient Egypt. So she pulls all of this anthropological evidence and says this was going on in early modern England. First, her idea spread really quickly because um, there was sort of finally someone in England writing about English history. So this was really interesting and really exciting, and everyone was so pumped about it. Finally, someone's talking about this. And it was also a little bit mysterious, you know, these sort of, are they really magical spells or what's going on? But then it got picked up abroad because it was interesting. So it got picked up on the continent and here in the United States. Also because she wrote the article on witchcraft for the 1929 edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica. And it basically stayed there for the next 40 years, uh, virtually unchanged. They just, never, they just never changed it. So it's possible that millions of people had read her particular version of witchcraft practice. Folklorists were up in arms. They were like, I mean, pitchforks in hand, really. Um, and her critics focused on her methods as well as her conclusions. So they called her crazy. Um, they basically, they marginalized her just as a crazy woman. She needs to go back to Egyptology. Um, 
sometimes they really did go in and focus on her methods, which were legitimate arguments. So um, her scholarship methods were a bit faulty because she took these primary sources and said, these are true, and she didn't really back them up with much secondary evidence. Um, her conclusions weren't completely wrong, but they tended to be sort of on the wrong side of of the theory and the method. Um, so, so they really did attack this, but it was more about her as a person um, and saying, you know, go back to Egyptology, you're out of place, you don't know what you're doing, you're this crazy lady. But in fact, what is interesting is that her ideas did fit into um, sort of the current anthropological frameworks of the day. So uh, J.G. Fraser's framework of survivals, anthropological survivals, where there are certain practices that remain in religion or culture as sort of time goes on, just because sort of it works and people are comfortable with that. Um, J.G. Frazier, who wrote The Golden Bow, uh, and that is all about these Dianic, divine king type of cults. His book just was a bestseller, and he's really well known for these ideas, and then hers was sort of like, you're kind of, you don't know what you're talking about, even though it really does fit. So <clears throat> I'm getting to my point, I promise. So her argument uh, about realistic practice was that these women are working in covens and within the constraints of what nature could do. She argues that there's natural magic, but these women sort of use substances to alter consciousness and do other things with people, but there was nothing really supernatural about it. So she didn't actually believe in a supernatural force. She was really empirical. She wanted the evidence. But there was a guy in the 50s, 1950s, named Gerald Gardner, who read all of her books, and he really liked what she had to say about the practice of witchcraft and why people practice witchcraft. And he wrote a book, um, I believe it came out in 53, called Witchcraft Today. And it's still like a bestseller among um, people who sort of claim to be pagans. So he lays out the belief system of witchcraft. Um, he claimed he was trying to write a book to show people that witches weren't demonic, that they were just normal people who just worship nature. It's a nature-based system instead of something supernatural. If you ever meet anyone who practices Wicca or who identifies their belief system as pagan um, or something like that, they know Gardner. Uh, they know who he is, they know his practices, and they really hold Margaret Murray up as this founding mother of Wiccan practice. But Gardner uh, is credited with giving the practice of witchcraft a foothold and sort of a manifesto. So Murray sort of wrote everything down. He read what she wrote and then wrote it down again and said, let's really do this thing. <laughs> Had her write the, he, she wrote the preface to his book, like the introduction to huh. his book and said, yeah, okay. So like, he's writing down these things. These are, these are great. You guys should do them. You know, these are nice things. Um, so that's really what I mean when I say that sort of a man came in and pushed her out. Like she was criticized for her scholarship and then for her conclusions. They didn't just try to discredit her work, but her as a person. And then Gardner comes in and builds this whole belief system on it that people practice to this day. And from that, I have argued, and one could, that you sort of get the foundation for Joss Whedon's Buffy the Vampire Slayer, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter, this idea of witches riding brooms. Um, they didn't actually, I mean, they did use brooms to ride on, but they also used them for other things. Um, and I could sort of just go on and on about, like, anytime I see witches, especially now around Halloween, I'm like, ah, oh, 
Margaret Murray, she's just sort of everywhere, but, you know, you can't just go up to people in Walmart and tell them, like, did you know why you're seeing this? I mean, well, I mean you could. could. It's Walmart. It's Walmart. It's okay. great. Totally good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where did the idea of witches riding on brooms come from? That I am curious about. <clears throat> so do you remember when I was talking about these substances that, that women would use to sort of alter their consciousness? The best way for those substances to be absorbed would be through um, through uh, tissues on your body that are sort of more open to moisture. So they would put the these substances on the tip of the broomstick and put them into their vaginas. Huh. Well, that's cool. different than... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I had a moment while you were explaining that going, is this going where I think it's going? Oh, it is. Yeah. It went exactly where you thought it was going. And Murray didn't necessarily say it exactly like that, but that is one of the... That's one of the theories. Mm -hmm. Interesting. <laughs> it is... I. I love your point about yeah once you once you realize kind of the uh, um, the history of of these ideas of witchcraft you really do see it everywhere uh, and um, I've been rewatching Buffy the Vampire Slayer for the last mm -hmm. few months and I was literally watching an episode before this taping and it's like all of all of these bits are in there this idea of um, like different kinds of fantasy writers have gone, okay, how can we meld this idea of worshiping nature and, um, but also have some like actual magic in there to play mm -hmm. around with. Uh, but like the good witches are the ones that are the most interested in the nature bit. And like the bad witches are the ones that are more interested in like the supernatural bit. And that seems to be this, um, just a dynamic that plays out a lot that, certain like so obviously now that I know all this comes from Murray well and it's also interesting because you see that in the development of Willow on Buffy yeah, the Vampire yeah. Slayer so she's like let's do this natural stuff and she's with Tara and things are great and they're practicing this natural magic and then she starts to get more powerful and especially after Tara dies she goes way supernatural and that's bad and uncontrollable but let's let's work on nature and then yeah. she like goes back to the nature thing and yeah, yeah. Definitely. When Willow goes off the deep end and it's Xander who kind of talks her back from being this uncontrollable natural force, <laughs> I felt like that was really regressive as far as like the, the, the whole thing leading up in that show, right? That you have yeah. a, a feminist theme that runs throughout it. And then the one thing that brings this uncontrollable natural force back to being tamed is a man. Uh. <laughs> and it's also like if you look at the whole season um it's it's like the the big bad in that season is misogyny in various forms yeah and, and then like the thing that like take yeah i mean i feel like i could talk a lot about how xander is the worst and i'm sure that we all could yeah <laughs> and i think that gets to a little bit of our next question which is if it was not correct or her conclusions were sort of problematic or um, there are legitimate challenges to be made then like what is the significance of this witch cult theory especially to sort of history of women and gender and science and I think the Buffy conversation actually sort of 
addresses that a little that like there's this enduring um popular culture like afterlife for this Mm -hmm. theory but um can you talk a little bit more about um sort of in the like history of science side of things like how does this theory endure and why is it kind of important why is it important to tell the stories of these kind of theories that you know are not successful I guess in the long run yeah so so in the end I think most most folklorists most scholarly folklorists you know say okay her conclusions were wrong um but what it actually did do is it is it really forced um, scholars to deal with folklore in a scholarly way so um you know, talking about this idea of covens and, you know, what's going on in Anglo folklore or early modern stories of, you know, mysteries and things that are happening and all of that kind of stuff. Um, scholars really hadn't been dealing with that in uh, sort of a, a measured um, evidence-based way. So anthropologists ended up having to grapple with these ideas that were clearly based on faulty work. Um, which meant that Murray ended up giving witchcraft and pagan practices historical validity. And so she sort of helped the reaction to her help to turn folklore studies into a legitimate practice. So there's actually a whole industry in folklore studies about who believed Margaret Murray and why. In fact, that's the title of an article um, written by a woman named Jacqueline Simpson, just, I think maybe 10 years ago. I mean, it wasn't even that long ago that she wrote this, like who believed her and why. So, and also what it does for, um, for sort of the history of science is it sort of says, okay, we can look at this story and we can go, what did this woman who was clearly influential in Egyptology, you have to dig in to find it, but you, you see it. Um, and it is very clear but look what she had to do just to even get people to go, oh, there she is. Look, she's doing these things. It was kind of like she was over here dancing on the sidelines going, guys, I'm a thing. I'm a person. I say important stuff. Just listen to me. Um, you know, sort of shoving Petrie out of the way or at least pushing herself away from him. So there's that part. And then also <clears throat> I argue that really her witchcraft ideas are still, like we were talking about, all about powerful women. These covens were based on equality, women lifting each other up, worshiping something bigger than themselves, nature, but not something um, that they can't actually sort of get their hands on. These women formed small communities who didn't really need men to validate their existence. And one big fear that men had, and they still have, about women getting together outside of their families is that all of a sudden they decide that they didn't need men for anything and then, then what are we going to do with them? They're just going to go nuts. And, you know, if they're getting together outside of our families, they must just be having sex with each other. That's what witchcraft is obviously about, because that's what women will do if we're not there to control them, right? And so... And, and that, that would have been fine, too. But not for these men who kind of go, if women can take care of themselves, right. where do we sit? Right. They're yeah. afraid of it. And I think that that there are there is a part of male society today that's still sort of afraid of that idea of women going just too nuts and not needing us anymore kind of thing. So why is it that we continue to find this idea of a secret society of magical women so fascinating? 
Yeah. So again, it's about these powerful women being mysterious um, and that mysterious women are really powerful. What, what sort of crazy power do women have to like grow life inside their bodies and then push that life outside of their bodies and then continue sort of to feed that life with their bodies. Like women are this weird, like life giving force and they're just really sort of mysterious and powerful. And on the one hand, kind of going back to this um, obstetrics side of things like men historically have wanted to control that medically. Um, and then on the other hand, there's really no way to explain um, powerful women sort of for some people, except that they're scary or they're dangerous or they're mean or they're nasty or, you know, they, they need to be kept out of public arenas because they are in fact very scary and powerful and we just don't know what they're going to do. This whole idea of women's bodies being super mysterious and, um, you know, kind of out of this realm of knowledge for men is that even though, you know, it was kind of out of this realm of knowledge for men, they still had a lot of opinions about what was going on in there. Um, (laughs) And so about the time that these witch cults would have been doing their thing is also when it was kind of this dominant belief that it's it's like a mysterious cauldron of life going on in the uterus, right? Like (laughs) that it's, they didn't really have these expert, you know, scientifically medical opinions. It was just kind of this weird cauldron of life and mystery going on in there too. Um, So those ideas about what men thought was going on with women's bodies and what these, you know, things that were going on, you know, when these witch cults were supposedly active, um, those kind of coincide together here too yeah Yeah, and and it just and that kind of pointing out that parallel goes to show I think also just how enticing the like witch cult hypothesis is because it kind of says yeah men were coming up with all these like weird stupid theories about the mystery of women's (laughs) bodies and then uh there's a group of women over here that are like no actually we are mysterious and powerful and maybe kind of scary but it's awesome and so it's turning a lot of these assumptions about women's bodies on their head. And wouldn't it be great if there had been this like parallel world where I, and in some ways there was, uh, and that's also what makes it interesting is it's like almost true in a lot of ways and that women had their own societies. One of the reasons that I was so attracted to the history of medicine and midwifery when I was in grad school was because it was just kind of this, robust field of like women's knowledges you know and Uh that there was a concerted effort to not just of men not to just know it but to own it at the same time and just that that idea that um that women are supposedly like um useless and can't and can't create legitimate knowledge but at the same time there's this like massive campaign to you wrest that knowledge from women's hands and like it's this incredible dissonance between um the like mainstream narrative that women um can't do these kinds of things can't create like valuable kinds of knowledges and then this like massive effort to get everything that we can out of women especially to find out what's going on inside their wombs and stuff you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah i totally agree and there's also there's 
there's one more connection I want to make, and it's a very simple one, um, but it kind of goes back to this idea of sort of powerful women and trying to control them. These witches, um, I mean, think about sort of manifestations of witches in pop culture, in, um, yeah, I mean, in these these books, in these histories, they're, they're sort of seen as really ugly. Um, their skin has turned funky colors because um, they've done some of their magic their magic wrong. Um, they're ugly. They're mean. They're they cackle. You know, old. they're just these. They're old. They're these evil. They're just these evil women, and they're evil because they're powerful, and they're clearly they're they're old maids. They've they can't get a man because they just have these powers that clearly, you know, they're just <laughs> yeah. Or they're lesbians. They're either old maid lesbians or they're just old maids. So it's like you just you just have this all of this tied in together, and then you turn it into. Yeah, I mean, just this stereotype, right? Now it's that powerful women aren't just witches, but they're, you know, they're more than that. They're even more evil than these witches because of the weird powers that they have. So it just all kind of comes, yeah, it kind of comes full circle. We see it in pop culture, but we also see it in our, you know, in our daily lives of just being women in places of authority and people just don't like it. Uh, thank you for joining us Kate and talking with us about Margaret Murray and all of the knowledge that you have about her and the witch cult hypothesis some of the the article that we talked about that Kate wrote I will be including in the episode notes and also um, some of the other articles and other sources that uh, Kate had talked about today too so Thank you very much. Thanks, Kate. Thank you for joining us. Bye, Kate. At the end of every podcast, hosts will unburden themselves with one thing in the news, their work, or the world in general that is just annoying the crap out of them. This is one annoying thing. So this month, I am annoyed with Silicon Valley. Uh, but it's not specific <laughs> to this month by any means. Yeah, year. what's new? Um, yeah, what's new? Um, so the thing that's bothering me about Silicon Valley this month is the biohacking stuff. Uh, the Guardian had a really extensive article about it, and they interviewed one of the Silicon Valley executives that is partaking in biohacking. Um, but before I get to biohacking specifically, there's this history of Silicon Valley people doing dumb stuff. And one of those <laughs> things is uh, one of the, and this was, I guess, couple years ago at this point um is the soylent the soylent stuff so soylent was a diet drink that was invented by a tech bro who actually says he hates food and he needed this kind of meal supplement to um not have to eat the idea was basically slim fast the actual soylent itself was the actual soylent itself was actually awful like they weren't transparent about the ingredients. They told vegans it was vegan and it wasn't. It made people violently ill. Um, it apparently tasted like garbage. And anyway, it still uh, was invested in by venture capitalists for $50 million. Um, so it was a bad product, made people sick, was just a lie about what was in it. Um, and it still got bought for $50 million. 
maybe you shouldn't lie about what's the ingredients in something that you're also calling Soylent. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, why not? (laughs) (laughs) It makes you ill? Yeah. Could it be the cannibalism? (laughs) Um, So anyway, he basically was trying to invent SlimFast. Uh, so slim fast is something that has been traditionally marketed towards women for weight loss. They are meal supplements, right? You have the can, they even have like the granola bars and stuff like that now, but they're meal replacements that they're supposed to have the nutrition of a, and calorie count of a meal, right? Um, so he basically was trying to reinvent slim fast for men and tech people. And there was a article by Rose Evelith that kind of showed that this was a gender double standard that. They were calling this meal supplement, Soylent, a technology. Whereas for women, it's like dieting, right? That when you have these things invented by men coming out of Silicon Valley, that it's now more sciencey, it's now techy, right? So the same thing is kind of happening with the biohacking. These Silicon Valley executives are going days without eating. They'll have like black coffee and water, and that's all they'll have. And claims that are coming out of this by these men is that it helps them focus. Um, it helps them um, just, kind of, I guess, get in touch with themselves. And um, they 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 swear by it, say that it works, makes them makes them better at their jobs, whatever. The thing is that this is just fasting. This is this is cleansing, I guess, in a way, um, detoxing, whatever. All of these terms that we already know about for weight loss and they're calling it biohacking to make it sound like it's a tech thing and they do monitor themselves they they monitor themselves and um you know what's going on with their bodies throughout the fast and all of that so i guess that's where the hacking part of it comes in you're hacking your body uh, for a desired result but the way that these men talk about it is um you know, they post pictures of themselves with their shirts off. They're saying, they're claiming that it's not about weight loss. And yet they're taking pictures of themselves with their <laughs> shirts off and, you know, like, like a gym selfie, you know? So like, you know, claiming that it's not about weight loss, it's not about what my body looks like. And yet here at the same time, they're, you know, putting these pictures of their bodies out there, which is again, another gender double standard, right? Is that when, Women do these types of things when women don't eat for days at a time for weight loss because they want their bodies to look better is that it's, you know, I mean, how can you hate yourself so much to starve yourself to not eat, right? All of those types of things. That as soon as you get these men coming from a tech hub doing these same things that women have been doing and have been criticized for in various ways, that now it's somehow technology somehow it's now science and some somehow it's now acceptable and so that's what i'm annoyed about i'm annoyed about these gender double standards that come out of silicon valley um i mean we don't have to talk about the sexual harassment but this that goes on there too so i mean like silicon valley just seems like like the worst valley that could be. <laughs> okay well what i'm annoyed about This may change by the time you're hearing this episode. We're recording a little bit early, so we'll see. But I'm annoyed about Star Trek Discovery. And more, I think, more than annoyed, I think I'm just really disappointed and really sad. Um, 
I think that it just, it really sucks that here, as we face down the end of the world as we know it, um, it just is really hard to be let down by Star Trek, which is supposed to be the most sort of like hopeful vision of the future possible. So like I said, um, I will have seen more episodes by the time you are hearing this podcast, but I've seen the first two episodes. I watched them the day they came out. And I will keep this brief. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) There is a complete disregard. Oh, I should say, I will not. uh, There will be spoilers. I don't think I can do this without spoilers. So if you haven't watched Discovery, uh, go do that now. Pause the podcast. Watch the show. Then you can come back and listen to me complain about it. So the first thing that really bothers me about it is that there's just sort of this, like, total disregard for what are the very well-established canonical politics of Star Trek, um, namely not shooting first. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, okay, okay. Starfleet doesn't shoot first. It's like that and the Prime Directive are the two most important rules that govern the way this universe works. And... They are the things that produce all of the sort of hopefulness um, and and progressive energy of Star Trek that makes me want to watch it. So that is a huge bummer. And I won't go into exactly what happens or how badly they bruise that particular rule of the universe. But it's Um, crazy pants. (laughs) It's it's crazy pants. It's really bad. There are um, a number of scenes and pieces of dialogue uh, that contain some of the most (laughs) regressive, poorly thought out, I don't see color kind of uh, liberal commentary on race that I almost had to turn it off and like take a break. It is unbelievably bad. Um, There's a whole situation with the way the Klingons are portrayed and they have really cool uh, makeup, but uh, most of the Klingons have um, extremely dark skin. And then there's a sort of like literally outcast Klingon who becomes the sort of savior of the situation who has white skin. And I just can't, I can't, I cannot. And the fact that the Klingons are kind of coded black, right? And they're, like, religious zealots that are trying to, like, bring down the Federation. Like, oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. It's, like, a total, like, one of the things that is so great about Star Trek is, like, when they actually spend a lot of time developing um, the different aliens. So, like, DC Fontana wrote most of the Vulcan lore and sort of created this incredibly rich world. Um, and the same thing has happened over time for um, the Klingons. I think, like, you get a lot of that stuff in TNG where Worf is exploring his heritage and, like, trying to understand the Klingon lifestyle. So you learn a lot about that stuff. And this kind of overturns all that. It takes place before TNG, yeah. but it casts the Klingons as this, like, completely backward religious zealots. Um, but they are coded as the black characters. So there's a huge problem there. There's just some, like, stupid, stupid dialogue about, like, I would... What is the... Like, the Admiral says something like, well, I would expect you to make uh, judgments based on 
race or something like that. You should take yeah. into culture, like really facile distinctions yeah. and like. I anyway. mean, at least with that, he's clearly supposed to be the stupid person in the room, but it's still a terrible line. Yeah, and it's just like the whole. All right, you gotta move on, and we're just never gonna get done with this. The the <laughs> the last thing, and this is this is like a bit of a spoiler. So by the end of the second episode, the show that has been sold to us for months by CBS as like uh, Star Trek is back. It is as progressive as ever. Michelle Yeoh is the freaking captain and she keeps her accent and it's the coolest thing ever. And her first officer is this like badass black woman. But no, it's the worst bait and switch ever because by the end of the second episode, you realize the captain is not an Asian woman. The first officer is not a black woman because she doesn't even get to be the first officer anymore. And the fucking captain of this show, excuse me, French, is actually Draco's dad. <laughs> Isaacs is the captain of the show. Another white dude. Like, it's the worst kind of cynical, like, bait and switch to, like, get you to subscribe to the CBS whatever it is. And get you thinking that, like, this is the Star Trek that you've always wanted. And, like, here is something that Star Trek has never done. Like, an Asian woman is the captain. She's super badass. A black woman first officer. This, like, executive branch of the ship is run by women, basically. But it's not. It's run by Draco's dad. (laughs) Uh, So we have to now put an E rating on this episode because of your little rant. (laughs) <laughs> you know what Star Trek is worth swearing over I knew I knew that was gonna happen I agree my one my one like hope is that Star Trek pilots are notoriously bad uh I feel like like yeah, like, like almost every single pilot is terrible and so like there's this tiny hopeful part of me that is probably fueled by my Star Trek love because hopefulness that, like, hopes that it goes somewhere. But I, it's funny. I was sitting through the whole thing going, this doesn't feel like a pilot. Why aren't we getting to know people? What the hell yeah. is going on here? And then they reset, and I'm like, oh, that's why that was terrible, because now there's a reset, and I'm yeah. confused. Like, the whole story <laughs> that takes place in the first two episodes is just to reset into what is the actual story. Right. So there's no point in getting yeah. to know anybody. Like, yeah. Michelle Yeoh dies, so who cares yeah. about her? it just didn't feel it didn't feel like star trek to me and i just feel like we all really needed some star trek so it's my advice great. to you is to rewatch tng skip the first two seasons and start in season three cool well uh i'll go last but but not least um mine is in no way science related really uh but that's okay um my thing that's annoying me is everyone out there who says, you know what we can do with statues of Confederate generals? We can put them in museums. That way we'll see <laughs> history, but they don't have to be in the public. And to which I say, no, museums don't want your stupid Confederate statues. <laughs> uh, back it up a little bit, uh, as I'm sure many of you know, over the summer, the debate over what to do with monuments to Confederate generals and other statues commemorating the Confederacy or other um, 
racist bits of history uh, was reignited um, in part because of the march in um, Charlottesville, Virginia, which I got the state right this time as opposed to in the essay I wrote where I got it wrong, um, where there was a march about a Robert E. Lee statue and a lot of terrible stuff happened. I don't need to rehash all of that. Uh, but it means lots of people are talking about this. And uh, this is none of the like talk that's happened around this is new at all. It's the same debate that we've had every time this has come up. Um, I think finally more people are starting to say, no, actually, maybe these statues are bad. So I guess that's progress. But it's the same debate. And one thing that comes up a lot is people are like, oh, people who try to do like, we can be moderate and compromise in the like, yes, statues versus no statues debate. And that compromise is, sure, okay, let's take them down. But let's put them in a museum. Uh, and most museums don't want the statues. Uh, that's not how museums work. Museums do not <laughs> just save everything that's old that you have feelings about. Uh, <laughs> they have collections policies. And uh, depending on what the museum is about, they're, uh, they're going to collect some things and not other things. Uh, museums do not collect every single little knick-knack that out there in the world that was mass-produced, which most of these Confederate statues were. Conserving uh, things takes a lot of money. Fun fact, if you ever want to donate something to a museum, ask them how much money they would, they would like you to donate with it to uh, catalog it. Um, because that is a whole other section of money, that, a whole other like donation that they need. And there's just a lot of them. Uh, no one, I won't say no one. Most people don't think that every like building or piece of public art out there in the world should be put in a museum. Uh, so we don't certainly need every statue of Robert E. Lee that was mass produced in the 1890s by a bunch of white supremacists who were members of the KKK. We don't need all those in museums. Maybe a couple of them, maybe the ones that got torn down in significant historical events, those can go in a museum about race and the Civil War and Reconstruction and all that stuff. Uh, all the others can go in the trash. The end. <laughs> here, here. Well said. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, that wraps us up for this episode. We are dedicated to making Lady Science accessible, so we are currently looking for someone to donate their time to help us transcribe our monthly episodes. If you are interested, please send us an email at ladiescienceinfo at gmail.com. Questions about any of the segments today? Tweet us at at ladyxscience or hashtag ladiescipod. To sign up for our monthly newsletter, read monthly issues, pitch us an idea for an article and more, visit ladiescience.com. We are an independent magazine, and we depend on the support from our readers and listeners. You can support us through a monthly donation with Patreon on or through one-time donations. Just visit ladiescience.com donate. And until next time, you can find us on Facebook at, at LadyScienceMag and on Twitter at LadyXScience. Hey!